yeah, but the point we're making bears that out of saying that if you stare intently on the person of Christ and what he said about who God is and who you are and what's possible, you will use technology appropriately. If you stare at your phone to figure out how humanity ought to be, you will not live well as a spiritual being. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And Cameron, I want to talk to you about food as technology, but to frame this, I want to pick up on an idea that you and I were down in Georgia. I was speaking on this some, and then actually um, Mm -hmm. I was over at UVA again, and one of the subcategories of a talk I was giving talked about the modern illusion that hope comes from novelty. And so this idea that hope comes from novelty, we've all seen it. Uh, and there are are reasons to like lean in that direction. There's 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 some temptation there for it is to say, look, we look at the advances that we've had in medicine um, and dentistry, as you like to point out, uh, technology, our phones, our cars, our electricity, our devices, phenomenal, wonderful progress, hip hip hurrah. We can we can praise and we can celebrate that. However, thinking that novelty and technology is going to give us hope is a shallow sense of hope because um, it's a category error. Our hope doesn't actually come through progress in the categories that technology actually solves problems. So love to flesh that out with you um, as we get into this. Uh, I'm trying to decide if I'll, well, let's just, yeah, let's just chat about that for a second and then I'll bring in kind of this idea of food as technology and we'll take it from there. So let's think about it in the, you mentioned it's a category error, I agree. I want to see if I can illustrate why it is a category error. So on the one hand, you do have technological innovation happening at a rate that is unprecedented. And you see more and more of it, and you see more and more technology. And that tends to mislead us into thinking that we're we're getting tr- a true sense of novelty. But I would maintain, and I think you would too, Nathan, that that is in fact an illusion. So here's how I'm going to try to illustrate this. In the realm of technology, you get a lot of obsolescence, right? Things become obsolete. It's funny, I was just talking with Dylan the other night. Dylan's my son. And he got a a wristwatch for his birthday recently. Oh, man, you're going to have everything timed now. Right. And he, you know, he said, Dad, this is like a bracelet and a clock. This is a clock on a bracelet. I said, yes, Dylan. It's a very small clock that goes around your wrist. I said, it's actually a pretty ingenious invention because instead of, you know, you're not going to lug a grandfather clock around with you, but you can put this on your wrist and then you could tell time. And I did say, but you'll notice more and more people don't wear these anymore. Why? Well, because they just look at their phones now. So it's a shame, I said, because a watch is a really neat invention. It's also can be very beautiful, really well crafted, and it can be very elegant, but it is largely obsolete. And then, you know, if I mention a a piece of technology like the telegraph, right? (laughs) We see we see devices that are obsolete all the time, because technology is moving forward. And that, and you're experiencing novelty. I just there. want to it's, say, I have an hourglass on my desk, so oh, I'm, yes, I'm struggling do. listening to your. Anyway, I, I'll just take it <laughs> on the chin. Carry on. Yes, yes, of course. So that's that's happening, and, and you know, but that actually is one aspect of it. I mean, there are still people who collect watches, 
right? And there are still people who have a lot of these, you know, and grandfather clocks, but it's it's less functional and more decorative these days. Well, think how much space a grandfather clock takes up right. compared to, a, I mean, wristwatch onto the next thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So these these items be, items become kind of relics of a bygone era. They become sort of accessories and fashion statements, but they're not really used as much. But do you ever approach human nature along those lines? You know, is it is it the case that you you read Homer's Odyssey or you read Macbeth or you read, you know, something by Virginia Woolf or Jane Austen and you say to yourself, all right, we've now settled the matter of human love and romance. We've settled the matter of heroism. We can close the book on these and move on to the next item and they're all solved. It sounds funny when we say it like that, but you don't solve human nature like that. Okay, well, hang on the a second. Perennial, so, yeah. Yeah, so we're not so we're not technology doesn't solve human nature, but it it can radically amplify No, that's its, not what I'm its saying. beauty though. and its brokenness. Well, I'm not saying that it's so I'm not saying so the the word solve is is misleading here. So I'm saying it's not like human nature doesn't work like the innovation of digital clocks on computers or smartphones, which then now that you have it, you can move on and it gets replaced by some new level of innovation, some new level of insight. Now, there are people, there are thinkers right now who who are going down this road and will say, you know, they'll use phrases along like transhumanist or a post-humanity. And the thinking there is that we are, you know, basically human, we're, our approach to human nature looks a little bit like our approach to technological innovation. Well, but that is, in on. fact, a category mistake. Yeah, yeah, well, all right. So it is a mistake, but let's push back on that just a little bit because it is tempting to, I, I th- okay, so I think in the past, say you talked to me five years ago, and I kind of had this joking thing, people are like all worried about transhumanism, and I'm like, you know, we have a very difficult time transcending something that we can't define. Like, how do you become more than human if we don't even know what it means to be human right now? And so I kind of scoffed off the whole project as like, this is silly. It's a technological, and I mean, in some of the modifications, neat, maybe blasphemous or sacrilegious perhaps, but it didn't seem mainstream enough for to me to say, oh, this is really going to change the world. I'm wondering though, I'm just waffling here for a second, of if we are on the cusp of modifying ourselves technologically, and I'm not talking about like brain implants here, um, mm-hmm. but through our use of technology of changing ourselves into a not transhuman, but subhuman, and you can't really say subhuman either, but like we're we're creating a different Technology is allowing us to create a very different appearance and mm-hmm. way of being. It, it, mm-hmm. Human nature is still baked into it, but mm-hmm. but it's different. So let me get, let me give you a statistic that I think is interesting. So I was reading this book, um, and it had this offhanded comment in there that something like in 1940, when Congress instituted the draft, talking about World War II here, that a third of Americans that were drafted were ineligible to serve because they were malnourished and underweight, um, nutrient deficiencies and, and underweight. A third of your young men in the country in 1940 did not have the physical requirements necessary because of malnutrition. Okay. Let's fast forward 
82 years to 2022 and look at, you can find articles all over the place about the military saying that they're having trouble meeting their um, goals for recruiting because of obesity. And so now the percentage of, I think I saw somewhere between 17 and 24 year olds, 77% are disqualified from the recruitment standards due to physical or mental health or, you know, drug abuse or something other. And so the military is saying we're recruiting at about the same rate, but the percentage of those who are viable is far smaller than it used to be. And so that's just one category. But I'm saying if you look at how the population has spiked between 1940 and today, and how the number of farmers has radically deteriorated from, I don't know, I'm just guessing probably like 40% or something in 1940 down to, I know it's less than 2% today. So the population goes up, the number of farmers goes down, the people, the number of people who are malnourished is then was smaller than the number of people who are obese now. That is a wild technological achievement. And just talking about food as technology there of saying that, and and, and we will need to talk about the fact that actually global starvation is on the upswing. I think UN report said we went from 135 million to 348 million in the last two years. Uh, that's a substantial, a substantial uptick in people who are on the brink of like major food crisis. And all of that is due to government corruption, displacement, refugees, wars, people being chased out and living in tent mm -hmm. camps and stuff. So there is that, so, but okay, so, but that's proven my point actually, right? Is that we have the technology in order to go from a third underweight to maybe half overweight in a certain amount of time. Yet, if we look mm -hmm. at other places in the world where we're in a global community, the technology all exists there, it still doesn't and can be shared. It like human nature is still such a factor of it that technology can't solve the problems that we have. Yeah. Of even if we yeah. do know how to maximize the resources of another place, if everybody's killing each other or the governments are corrupt, it's still not going to work. So to me, it's just one great big frustration because like I can see, I can see like solutions kind of, I mean, but they aren't technological, even though we have the technological tools to fix them. My hope still isn't based on the technology. So I don't know, sort that one out for me. What am I trying to say? I definitely can't sort it all out for you. <laughs> I can say that, when it comes to our technology here in the United States and in developed nations, we're often victims of our success. And yeah, certainly that's a good way to put that. the growing obesity rate would, would bear that out. And then a more sobering way to put it would be as you look at that spike in poverty and real hunger crises, other people are victims of other people's success, right? Whether those are gover sure. foreign governments or our government. There are many policies that obviously are very advantageous, for, for instance, for Western nations that put developing nations at a, at a distinct disadvantage. And so, yeah, we can use the word corruption as a kind of all-encompassing yeah. word. Well, and I mean, so like just to put some practical names on that, like you look at somebody combining grain in Ukraine, um, combines right. are not equipped with anti-missile defense systems. I mean, so it doesn't matter mm -hmm. how good of a farmer you are or how great your technology is. Um, it's not going to help you there. Yes. And so, again, the your point stands that human nature remains human nature, even with massive technological advantages added to it. And my point that 
human nature doesn't get modified in the, or updated in the same way as a piece of technology, I think also stands here. The, the notion, and again, it makes sense. Let's back up for a moment. If you're a person who takes a, and, and this might, might be some of you listening in, if you take a more naturalistic or reductive view of human beings, then it would make sense actually to look at human beings in instrumental terms. But what I'm suggesting to you here is that the basic problems plaguing humanity ever since the the dawn of civilization have not changed. Our technology has, but mortality, corruption, hunger, racism, ecological disasters, we're, we're facing, I mean, there are, there are different, there are different times where some of these maybe become more prominent than others, but they've remained perennial struggles and conflicts throughout human history. And well, well so, but yeah, the pushback there has there been, yeah, but the pushback yeah. has been that education is going to be the thing that solves this. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's just like, I guess the people at Enron just weren't educated well enough. No. That, yeah, so so was, was it was it D.L. Moody, who one of those old preachers where he said, you know, if you catch a kid who's stealing spikes out of the railroad track and you send him off to college, when he returns, he'll be able to steal the whole train. Do you remember that? Yeah, I'm but, not, I'm but not it, sure I've ever heard that, but that's quite shrewd. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's that idea of like, if you take somebody with a corrupt heart and give them more education, they'll be able to weaponize their corruption to a higher, right. you know. Um, and so it, it's a yeah, it's a funny little pithy Make little statement. Dangerous. Yeah. So anyway. It fits with what you're saying there, I think. Well, yeah, and I think I do think that, broadly speaking, we're there's there's growing recognition that there's no necessary correlation between a great intellect, say, or high levels of achievement and moral behavior. <laughs> I mean, the example that springs to mind, given what you just told me, Nathan, is if if you know anything about the biography of of Charles Manson, when he did an an early stint in prison. He did a series of business courses on <laughs> how to be persuasive. Oh, and goodness. he was really good at them. And again, the leadership at the prison thought, oh, it's a great thing. You know, he's, he's there's, there's some education happening here. This is constructive. This is good toward reform. And by the way, I think that's a healthy way to, to look at it. But of course, we know how that turned out. And so again, and I'm not saying that you know, prison reform movements are all doomed and that's all bad and that we shouldn't be optimistic. I, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that human nature presents us with a deeper conflict and dilemma and mystery than we're often willing to accept. And especially, certainly if we take a very instrumental view of human beings, we're going to find ourselves frequently bewildered, disappointed, and very frustrated and maybe on the brink of despair. Ooh, okay. So this, this triggers a thought in my mind. How then does that relate to, let's talk about Twitter and Facebook or Meta real quick, because let's. they're in, in states of massive upheaval. Yep. And I think one of the things that people would say about Twitter is that the reason people didn't like it is because it let too much human nature come through. I mean, think about all the websites. If you're older than like 30 years old here, you can think of websites that used to have comment sections on them. I mean, NPR used to have, like in my lifetime, you could yeah, type right. comments at the end of an NPR article. All of yeah. that stuff is gone. I mean, some websites- New York Times still do, as if, well, if yeah. You, yeah, if you have a paid membership, you can. 
But why? To, because because yeah. it devolved into like just chaos. Um, and so technology mm-hmm. highlighted in some sense the way people are when there's no accountability or um, when anonymity is is high. But you have Greek poems, I mean, Greek stories about the same idea of how would people behave if they were invisible uh, or, you know, yeah. so yep. anyway, so there's there's that thing going on. And then you have the metaverse not panning out, meta laying off 11,000 people and Zuckerberg saying, sorry, I was too optimistic about this you know, idea and form of technology, where on the other hand, I would say, well, that's because people like living in reality, not in a fake world. And so I'm torn in between here. It looks like technology is kind of pointing toward some ways giving us empirical data on how we really are. Yeah. And I think there's a common refrain of disillusionment among many people who are at the cutting edges of the, of the tech sector the person who always comes to mind for me is Jaron Lanier, Lanier, Lanier. I'm never going to get it right. We'll see. I'll have to look this up at some point. He was one of the architects of the internet. And he firmly believed initially that the internet would be just really the gateway to a more humane world and that the democratization of, of information would be a beautiful thing. So he had kind of almost a utopian vision. He was quickly disabused of that before the advent of social media and all of that. He 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 began when, when the prototypes basically of social media sites began to emerge. He has a really good way of looking at this because he's more introspective about it. So he doesn't say, "Oh, it made other people horrible." He noticed that the, he noticed the effect it was having on him, and hmm. so very 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 quickly he decided, "I need to disengage from this because it's really." It's it's turning me quite hostile to people over seemingly he he said he had, I remember one time getting into an argument about a particular guitar that I thought was better than another one and just getting so insulting to this other person I thought wait what is happening to me this doesn't <laughs> matter that much why am I doing this and then you know of course now fast forward to the world that we're in today and he and so you know he's he is he is the author of among other books ten reasons to I think it's I think it's yeah 10 reasons to to disconnect all of your social media accounts now <laughs> real huh. subtle but definitely we're we're getting and I I would say Nathan broadly speaking that you're especially when I talk to to younger people and by that I mean you know people in their early 20s you're seeing a lot of technology fatigue mm-hmm. I mean I think mm-hmm. you know and because it's not certainly younger people aren't interested in Twitter <laughs> Twitter is almost as uncool as Facebook these days in the eyes of some of these people. They don't they don't want to be they don't want to be in that world. They certainly don't want to be, you know, on Reddit and go into any of those threads. And also, you know, it's you always always look for the leading trends among sort of the, the wealthy and the elite classes. Well, you know, generally speaking, in the Silicon Valley sector and all of that, the, the you know, the more prominent you are, the less technology you have in your own home. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I think even Mark Zuckerberg is in this category. He has barely anything at his house. He's got quite a minimalist approach to his own living space and less and less devices. And also, if you want to go on one of these, you know, swanky digital fast vacations where you go to these remote spots and you don't have your phone 
and all of that. Yeah, but I, I mean, I live in this, one of those, so I know all about it. Y- yes, and and I can vouch for that. I, I took a little digital fast when I went and visited <laughs> Brother Rittenhouse. <laughs> but yeah, so that points to, I think people, people, people are tired of 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 some mm-hmm. of this and just the overload and. There is a growing interest. I mean, why the heck is Wendell Berry so incredibly popular? Who would have thought we would reach a day where he where he would be a rock star? I'm sure that's funny yeah. to him as well. <laughs> but he's not alone. I mean, there, there's a whole new emphasis on, you know, basically being more involved in your own community, in your own locale, purchasing land. I mean, this all sounds very quaint, and I think this is largely, a, a, you know, having a garden, you know, having, I think it's a healthy trend, but it's a little bit of, of a reversal from, from some of what we, we were talking about. And part of it has to do probably because people are getting that message over and over again of human limitation and frailty, and it's just being amplified for us all the time. Okay, so let's let's say somebody's listening to this and they're saying, okay, blah, 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 that's all interesting. But as a Christian, why does this matter? Let me let me run some ideas by you, and then you can add a few onto this. Um, the first one is is that Jesus does not talk about iPhones or combines or the internet. Well, he you is talking read the Gospel of Thomas. Well, to... <laughs> I have read the Gospel of Thomas, and that's not in there either. But um, the uh, and and no, just to clarify for everybody, I recognize that is not. Canonical scripture, Gospel of Thomas, should not be included for multiple reasons, or Judas, or yeah, a couple of the other ones. But um, the the idea that is is helpful is because I think there's a sense in which you can look at scripture and say this is a very antiquated view of reality and of humanity, and why would we study something from two thousand years ago in order to provide a moral referent for ourselves and for the structuring of our communities? And what we would say, as people who use technology and benefit from it, is that it's great, but our hope does not come from technology. It comes from the style of relationship between God and humanity that Christ lays out for us. And so he's speaking of perennial themes that it doesn't matter what language you speak, what culture you're from, what technology you have access to. He's like, when, when you know, you've heard Cameron say like, we study scripture because scripture describes reality. He's not saying when he says that, that scripture helps you like know when to hit control, alt, delete. He's saying that like on the, mm-hmm. on the deep fundamental things of what it means to be a human of life, that is where scripture provides clarity. So I think that's like just a really helpful reminder for me. And maybe for you, as you listen to say that, yes, technology can be great. We do not place our hope in it. And the gospels are not irrelevant. And in fact, in them, we place our hope. And so it's just, we all know that, but I think it's time for that reminder. Again, yeah, probably we also, need that once a month, but. Yeah, and, and to put this into, in a different way, if the instrumental view of human beings were true, then you could make a case and say, well, scripture is simply irrelevant and outdated. But again, I think that would be a category mistake. That would be a bit like saying, so imagine if imagine if what we had in scripture was descriptions of ancient farming techniques. Right. If that were the case, it would be a book that would be interesting to us 
for gaining insight into the habits of ancient peoples. Well, and it's but terrible because it be, that uh, farmer threw his seed on the road, which I have no idea what was going on there. That <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but but you see, but that but but you see there also it would be obsolete from a technological standpoint. We wouldn't need it anymore. We have modern farming techniques, so why would we ever refer to it? Now, okay, why did I say that? Well, some people look at human if people look at human nature like that, and people do, and some of us inherit that view. We don't even we don't even realize that that's how we're looking at people, but we are. It's in the air we breathe that human nature just simply grows and progresses. And, you know, and that, and also, by the way, here's another just built-in assumption of what I would call the myth of progress here. Progress with a capital P. The notion that we're just, we're evolving, ever evolving and changing. That whatever is newer is better, usually, in this, mm -hmm. in this mindset, right? And so whatever is old is outdated, irrelevant, and probably bad, too. And so the also, past but, is so, but, Yeah, but therein lies the Wendell Berry attraction. I think mm -hmm. I think you're touching on something there that the, some of that is is starting to crumble a little bit. Like is, yeah. is is that not the appeal that he has? I mean, here's a guy who advocates farming with horses for crying out loud and mm -hmm. is like yep, I right. don't know how many books he's going to sell this year, but it's a lot. Uh so he has a m massive voice and this is a guy who you have to write him a letter if you want to communicate. So is well, and we should do a there's a whole another one there on well, I think we've we've appropriately dealt with like there's also the false allure of the past is better um oh absolutely no we, and, we've we, touched and on we that. stabbed a, that one in the head i think so pro progress doesn't mean unhealthy it's nostalgia unhealthy yeah, no yeah. but so, so it, it's it's time in general it's not just the past and not just the future it's looking outside right. of but what time i'm doing here hope. yeah right but also if you look at human beings like that though then you would say scripture was operating with an ancient view of human nature and morality that has simply been replaced now or displaced by our more modern enlightened mindset on the matter. And so therefore scripture is obsolete and irrelevant. And what we're saying here is that you may take that view, but if you look at the problems confronting us, the technology that we have is unique and novel. The, prob the problems we're suggesting that we're confronting in the modern world are not unique and novel. Okay, right? so, hey, here's the thing, though, Cameron. Let me just add to your point there, is it's not just the two of us, and it's not just Christians who are saying that. Look at Jordan Peterson. Look at mm -hmm. Jonathan Haidt. Look at all these modern moral psychologist guys who are, yep. are needing to resort to, <laughs> maybe in their minds, are needing to resort to using religious language in order to describe yeah. reality. Even though they themselves yeah, they are not to... believers or aren't part of it, they're recognizing mm -hmm. that when you get down to the heart of humanity, this stuff makes way more sense than most of us would like to admit at a cursory glance. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes good sense of the world as we see it and human beings as we see them. And to my mind, still one of the most damning sentences came from John Gray, himself a thoroughgoing skeptic, but a very consistent one at that. He he just says we're confusing technological progress with moral progress. Not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. We may have penicillin, but we also have the threat of nuclear proliferation. That latter is not a moral improvement in any sense of the word. So, and so you want to hear a funny story yeah. about that? I'll tell you. Let's so this is one that this is a radio interview that didn't go well. So it's like my seventh great grandfather's brother or something. One of those written houses back there was instrumental in calculating the transit of Venus. And so 
he ran the Philadelphia Mint and built clocks and all kinds of goofy stuff back in the 1700s. Anyway, when the transit of Venus actually did happen, he got so excited that he passed out because he had built this telescope to watch it and all that kind of stuff and his works in the <laughs> Smithsonian, different universities and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, the transit of Venus happened again. It's like a really weird cycle where it's like every seven years and every 240 years or something. I forget how it goes. So long time later, um, I live close to the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And since we were family of this guy, they invited our family of Rittenhouses to come watch the transit of Venus with all this modern technology and equipment and huzzah, fun, hooray, whatever, neat little thing. And they're like, oh, you know, here's family of the whatever. And so they asked my grandpa what they, you know, what he thought about progress. And he said, <laughs> he said, well, it's interesting. He said, we live in a time in which our probability of landing a man on the moon is higher than our probability of having a man be able to stay married to his wife for more than 20 years. <laughs> is that progress? Yeah. Um, and talk about shutting down like a scientific journalist interview. I mean, but he, he was playing with that idea, right? Of And that's not trying to point fingers or condemn anybody. He was just pointing to cultural changes that have happened that's in really the same well time said. as our technological changes to just yep. – her. The, the reporter's problem was she just said progress in general. She should have said scientific progress maybe. But um, mm -hmm. yep. But that's true, right? And so th there's a little – it always stuck in my mind of like staying off to the side of like, oh, that didn't go as planned. But – um, the idea is there, right? Moral progress, technological progress, relational progress. There isn't a direct link. Maybe there's an inverse one in some categories of it, but anyway, there, there's a little rabbit trail to throw some fuel on the fire of the point I think you were making. Yeah. And I think at a certain point, what you, what you find happening is if you've got a technological reach that gets really radical, then you can greatly... You can enhance, you know, you can, in theory, enhance human goodness and usefulness and service, right? Or you can enhance human wickedness and vice as well. And I think that's why technology, the key word here, I think, in this episode, so often serves as a kind of amplification system of human strengths and human weaknesses. And I want to also put a cautionary word in here. I don't want, I, sometimes I'm concerned, I don't want you to hear both of us as, you know, sounding like two hardened pessimists when it comes to human beings. I happen to believe that, and you you need to, you have to take this with, you have to, this is coming from a Presbyterian right here, so. For crying out loud. Speaking for myself, not, not for Nathan, but. I do happen to believe that the notion that human beings are just absolutely ruthless, you know, rapacious survivors and, you know, we have to just, the law has to be in place to curb all of those selfish, you know, tendencies. I happen to think that that comes, that comes from Hobbes and John Locke and people like that. That's not necessarily true. I think you look around and you're going to see wonderful examples all around you of people being kind and decent and self-sacrificial. And so I think human potential is marvelous. Human, We are made to be vessels for Christ, right? So, I mean, human beings are, are amazing. We can be hallowed in that way. And I, I don't want to lose sight of that beautiful focus for human beings who are made in the image of God. But, however, I don't, I think we also, we can't lose sight of the fact that of our human limitations. 
And whenever we do, even with the best of intentions, that's where optimism, not hope, optimism, optimism mm-hmm. is, is, I would define as a kind of almost rigid, stubborn <laughs> determinism for a good outcome, that can become very dangerous. And I, I do think Pascal did a good job in, in, I mean, he was drawing on kind of medieval thinking when he said this, but he essentially said, when you're thinking of a person, you have to think of a being situated between an angel and an animal. And we're, we're not doing, I mean, and that therein lies the balance. If you overemphasize the angel, you're, you're going to end up acting like a demon. If you over, <laughs> if you overemphasize the animal, you, you're going to end up being degraded and treating human beings as less than what they are actually worth. So, I mean, spiritual creatures, in other words, I just want, yeah. I think that's the responsible balance we have to hold in our heads. And I think as, I mean, as Christians, often we drift into, we can drift into extremes here as well. We can either be too optimistic about human, human beings, or we can be way too pessimistic about human beings. Yeah. And, and so, but, well, yeah. The, yeah, but the point we're making bears that out of saying that if you stare intently on the person of Christ and what he said about who God is and who you are and what's possible, you will use technology appropriately. If you stare at your phone to figure out how humanity ought to be, you will not live well as a spiritual being. And so, like, they're not incompatible, but there's an ontological necessity to the priority of the order in which we look to them for guidance. Yeah. Yeah. And that just means that, I mean, good wisdom is having those priorities in order. And again, being in touch with reality and the prerequisite to that is worshiping the Lord in spirit in truth with other believers and getting in touch with the fear of the Lord, which is synonymous with you recognizing his authority rather than human ingenuity and ambition as the, as the sole source of authority. If we get all hung up on technological progress and what human beings are doing, we're off, we drift into mistaking human ambition and human ingenuity as the source of our authority. That's, I think that's, that's kind of how we, we need to approach the, the whole priorities conversation there as Christians, speaking to Christians here. Well, we started off talking about food as technology. I'm sure we'll talk about food some more in the future because it is uh, kind of a necessity. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but it does help. Um, so it's it's always always before us there. But we drifted off into some territory about technology and human nature. I think things that will be perennial themes or are certainly at all times operating in the background of our conversations here. But you know Evergreen. What? Evergreen, there you go. Some things can't be said too often. I hope that this helps you um, be faithful and wise with your use of technology, that you aren't using it as a source of hope uh, because it's not going to solve your problems in the future and that you aren't using it as a source of distraction to distract you from the things that God might be calling you to do or to accomplish and complete today, but that we would be looking to Christ being conformed to his image and then using our technology uh, wisely on the back end of that. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www 
www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.